2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm happy to be joined today by three great guests. Katie Wells is a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University. Kafui Atto is Associate Professor of Urban Studies at the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. And Declan Cullen is Assistant Professor of Geography at George Washington University. Together they have written a book entitled Disrupting DC, The Rise of Uber and the Fall of a City. It comes out today from Princeton University Press. Dr. Wells, Dr. Atto, Dr. Cullen, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: us. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having us. (laughs) It's just a terrific book. I mean, and this is an obvious one to recommend to folks who who care about DC, who care about Uber and the gig economy. But I I think it also should make it onto the nightstands of really anyone who cares about contemporary cities, which should be all of us. Um, The analysis is really exciting and enlightening and also really accessible. And I got to say, the quotes you get are just gold. I think I believe you did like over 50 stakeholder interviews or something like that. And, and and what you got back is just so rich. It's it's as good as like anything you'd find in a reported piece from some sort of like article trying to go out and get clicks. Um, and in some cases also what your participants give you is is really as sophisticated as, as an academic researcher would we, we, kind of do in their analysis. And so just congrats on the whole project. Thank you. To, to jump in here, Katie, I wonder, you know, one doesn't have to care about DC to appreciate this book. Um, And it turns out that you didn't choose DC, it seems just because two of you work there. It it, it I, I didn't understand that DC turns out to be a really important to the story of Uber. Why is that?
1: Yeah, we didn't really realize that Uber played, you know, D.C. as this important thing in its story. Um, we didn't realize D.C. was going to be a protagonist in the story of Uber um, when we started out this work in 2016. But it turns out D.C. is important because it does not have a state level government And so when Uber's, you know, own sort of army of lobbyists came to get a law that they liked, they only had to go through the city level legislature. They didn't have to also go to a state and worry about any kind of preemptive, you know, legal fuss.
0: Interesting. And they, and they really, the company, it seems like really reflects on DC as kind of a proving ground for many of their approaches.
1: Right. Which is like so hard as a kid from Northeast Ohio. You know, if D.C., the land of labor rights and progressive politics and a really interesting black liberation history is like rolling over and rolling out the red carpet for Uber, it is so depressing to this kid from Northeast Ohio. Because if, Uber, if D.C. can't stand up to Uber, my God, what will?
0: <laughs> and Kaf, we one of the things we see when you when you take us um, into the city level government here, and, and we learned that legislators have been for a while really focused on trying to attract, trying to trying to make DC a hub of innovation and to attract uh, tech companies and others. And we and we, I think we saw that nationally with the the Amazon um, push for the second headquarters there. But um, you argue that that Uber's growth in the district is is not a sign of, of um, in your words, urban economic strength or urban innovation. This isn't a, a win for this kind of push toward innovation, but actually Uber's strength in the district is actually a reflection of, as you say, urban weakness, desperation, and low expectations. Could you unpack that argument a little bit for us?
2: Sure. Um, and part of it is just a sense that Uber um, offers kind of like a a mirror, uh, to, to the city and the conditions of, of urban life. And oftentimes it's pitch to cities or the reasons it's attracted to cities is are the very reasons that, you know, people are so frustrated with urban life, not being able to get around, um, you know, the absence of good paying jobs, the, um, failures of public transportation. And so when, uber steps in and says you know we can do all these things um you know uh cities can say great we we're we're innovative but it it, it's really a sign of a kind of um history of disinvestment um decades of kind of um political and legislative um you know uh intractability i don't know The, the degree to which um You know, Uber has been able to take advantage of all the gaps in the social safety net that have defined urban life um, in American cities for for, for many decades. And some of that has to do with federal, you know, disinvestment and retrenchment. Some of that has to do with broader changes in the global economy. Um, Some of it has to do with, you know, what Katie was mentioning before, like the Particulars of D.C. and the kind of structural problems of trying to get anything done, (laughs) Um, you know, without kind of uh, uh, representation. Um, uh, So, yeah, I think there's it's Uber is a great way to to talk about how cities are oftentimes failing their residents and citizens and less um, a way of talking about how great Uber is is, you know, um. Declan, one of the overarching themes of the book
0: is we kind of termed the construction of, of common sense. And I found this really intriguing. Um, and I wonder what you mean by that. I, I, I you have, a you know, we're talking about uh, that is talking about the frustrations of urban life and that, you know, how do we, how do we do these things? And then people like David Plouffe, who moves from the Obama white house to Uber, is kind of making the case that oh, uber is actually really well situated to just solve these problems for us um and and you get this attitude that you guys term uh, just let uber do it how did how did that become common sense and what do you mean by common sense mm.
3: um i think uh so the the common sense idea or the idea of common sense we had lots of discussions about it um, it came out of this kind of broader desire to try and understand the conditions that gave rise to uber um, and, and what allowed it to be so dominant in cities. So I think when we first started writing, one of the things we agreed upon was that we didn't want to write a book that was kind of like um, a hit piece on Uber, like Uber's bad. And and um, you know, and there's definitely lots of that in the book, right? But there's lots of books that do that better, like specific examinations of Uber's business model and how it works and so on. So what we were more interested in is kind of like, how can we make a, a kind of like a good faith argument about Uber? like that addresses this kind of, I think really important question that everybody will ask you when you say you're working on Uber. Is like, you know, why is it so popular if it's so bad, right? Or should I stop taking it? These kinds of questions that you can kind of dismiss, but they're actually really important questions we were trying to argue in the book, right? So we all use Uber or lots of people use Uber. Right? I try not to, but it's a solution. Um, you know you want to get to the airport early in the morning right and you want to get home late at night and actually one of the things that started looking at uber was Katie looking for like how to get a babysitter home late at night and the baby says like, I'll just take an uber and Katie was like what is that and how is it possible that it will take you two blocks in the rain at like an affordable rate right you know a taxi driver would never do that um, and you would never even think of doing it anyway so um, these kinds of solutions, I think, were were um, were very interesting for us to try and understand, right? So, I think in that, in one meaning, then Uber is like common sense and the kind of you know everyday usage of the word, right? It offers this kind of like you know this basic judgment right does it make sense for me to take uber in this moment in time and 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 it does right if you can't get a taxi you take uber you can't get to the airport metro's not working you take uber um or even as drivers right you you lack like um uh, you lack employment or you're underemployed or you want to um monetize your commute all these different things uber makes kind of sense right and in that sense, it, it has been very kind of, um, uh, I stopped using the word sense in, in, in that um, in that way. Um, it, it, its rise has been kind of really interesting because like, you know, we say to Uber, like people casually use that word as a verb now. Like it's like Google or Velcro, or it's like enter their vocabulary as this like extraordinary success, right? And that's a huge achievement, I think, in many ways. So the second meaning of common sense kind of comes out of this, this, this attempt to try and understand common sense as, as a political and ideological thing right so you, you could say right in some countries um universal healthcare, free education maternity leave and stuff like that are common sense propositions right um uh, although of course like routinely in the us those things are seen as kind of like ludicrous i think um but this version of common sense we argue is, is like a political thing right um so it's to do with institutions political interests economic regimes and on all these kind of contingent things and so common sense means different things in different eras and, and so on um so I think like one of the arguments we're making then is that that this common sense thing is, is, is kind of twofold, right? So Uber established itself as a common sense solution. And part of that is, you know, the company's aggressive marketing and institutional kind of work and regulatory stuff. Um, and the second sense is, is, as Kathy was really pointing out is that Uber kind of inhabits a world of poor alternatives. Um, and, and in that sense, like, um, um, all these pressures that city faces, like Uber can, can really, um, offer solutions right and we argue they're profoundly limited solutions but they're they're kind of solutions nonetheless and to many people they're kind of better than than nothing right um so i think that's kind of a, these these two meanings of individual common sense and also the more kind of politicized meaning of how they manage to shift what we understand to be common sense solutions or what sure. life in cities generally looks like
0: that's great, and let's let's get into the heart of the book now. And, and in the first chapter, Katie, you really take us out here by giving us a close look at the interaction between the company and city legislatures, um, and, and and trying to do trying to sort of solve some of these uh, the, the claims they were can solve many of the problems they've been trying to solve for years beyond just the limitations of the taxi service. Um, and of course, city legislatures turning and even even state and, and federal legislatures turning toward the private sector to solve problems is not new at all. And, and, you know, at least since the 90s or even, of course, long before we have this kind of the buzz around public private partnerships. But you all make the point that that's actually not the, the right kind of frame in which to think about the relationship between D.C. and Uber. How, how should we think about it?
1: Yeah, I think that's um, that's a great question. And that's one that we struggled with because at the beginning of this project, we were thinking of David Harvey's you know, famous paper about managerialism and the shift from that managerial form of city governance to entrepreneurialism of the 1980s and 90s where like building a stadium was gonna help the city, right? But in those projects, which were often public private partnerships, the city and a private entity would come together with a mutual goal, okay? Often it was a city outlining it, you know, think of the 2000s. Okay, we're gonna address homelessness and we're gonna partner with, let's say, Catholic charities. And we're gonna hire a private entity, whether for profit or nonprofit, and we'll work together to some mutual end. What was creepy and unpleasant about what we found is that in this case, it's not as if the city enlists Uber as its partner, but instead, Uber enlists a city, like it does its drivers, as its partner, right? So the the city is not in the uh, ha 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 driver's seat, okay? The city is not right coming up with a goal and having this entity help it, right? Uber is setting the terms of the agreement, it's setting the terms of the work, it's setting the goals, um, and so in that way, the city becomes almost you know second seated. And I think that that could be a different form of, let's say, urban governance than what we've seen in previous decades.
0: Could you say a little bit about some of the ways we see that happening at the legislative level?
1: Yeah, at the legislative level, what it means is that the city policymakers, agency staff don't have access to data about the operations of this thing. Whereas if the city were partnering, let's say, with Catholic charities to oversee homelessness services, they would have lots of data, lots of reviews, lots of governance, you know, regulation to make sure, is this entity doing what it says it's doing? What are its unintended effects, right? How effective is it? Okay. Uber's operations in almost every U.S. city, right, are completely hidden behind a veil. It's almost as if Uber becomes the um, wizard in the Wizard of Oz, right, operating in like the Greens in the Emerald City, and all the policymakers are running around sort of like, oh, isn't it wonderful? Look what the wizard is doing for us, right, but not actually having any data to hold it up, and it's been a decade, a dozen years now, and we argue it's time for a reassessment. Of, its effect, of Uber's effects on cities and their ability to regulate, let's say, their roads in a world on fire.
0: Turning to chapter two, um, Kath, I, I, I did not understand the extent to which um, Uber has has, um, deployed kind of politics of, of racial grievance in this. And we have, you show us around the nation, not just in DC, you know, op-eds being placed in papers, uh, billboards, uh, short films directed by Spike Lee that I totally missed out on. Um, you show eager kind of really Uber Ubers e- re- really eager to position itself as a tool to fight against racial injustice. Um, and in this chapter, you're less interested in kind of assessing whether that's a sincere fight or whether it's a cynical ploy um, than you are at trying to kind of understand what conditions have to be present for anyone to believe that kind of that that, that move there. And so
2: how did we get here? Oh, um, this, I don't know. This, uh, a lot has happened. I mean, I think so. I think part of, you know, what we... You know, as you said, what we wanted to do in the chapter is first to kind of document all the ways in which Uber has uh, employed kind of um, the language of racial justice to advance its own position in, in various cities. And I think in D.C., it, it's like impossible to, to ignore, um, just given the kind of racial demographics in, in the city kind of the problems of discrimination in the taxi industry, the kind of the classic problem of hailing a cab while black, which is real um, and, uh, you know, part of people's lived experiences. But then there's also kind of the broader kind of racial tensions around, you know, uh, gentrification and the, the kind of, um, you know, transformation of of dc um as as a city um and so uber has intervened sometimes explicitly sometimes kind of wink wink nod nod in those kind of very debates but it's not just in dc right we we've seen similar tactics employed in 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 new york and then in kind of debates over uh prop prop twenty two in, in California so it's not it's it's a pattern right and I think the first kind of um, the first reaction um, that's understandable people might have is well they're just being totally cynical <laughs> this is like a this is just, it's just you know we we can't we can't know their the heart of well first it's a multi yeah, you know, it's a that multinational corporation it doesn't have a beating heart. <laughs> we can't know their desires. But, um, but and I think there's but then part of it is like, well, to, as Declan was saying, to take Uber seriously and these claims seriously, we have to look at the kind of conditions that they are intervening in. And, and that means really talking about the kind of persistent racial injustices that have defined urban life that have made kind of the, um, uh, complaints and grievances of black communities, um, in, in cities across the country, um, uh, you know, taking those those, those grievances seriously and understanding those grievances as a failure of public policy and the failure of a, a, any kind of alternative vision of racial justice, and seeing Uber's intervention in that, its ability to actually um, really appeal to people on racial grounds. I will get you to um, you know Southeast, I'll get you to Anacostia, I will get you across the city. Um, you know seeing that as whether it's cynical or not it's real <laughs> um and it, it it we have to take it we have to take it seriously so again it's a our argument you know uh the same argument we're making across the rest of the book but but taking seriously the the degree to which uber has really um exploited the failures of racial liberalism in cities um and in profound ways, I think they're being cynical, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, but we didn't want to, we didn't want to end there. We didn't want that to be the kind of point. We didn't want to say, actually, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they don't really care about racial justice. They're, yeah, no, obviously. Um, but there's some, there's a deeper
0: story there. Uh, sure, and, and I think, and it harkens back to what Declan said about this is this is not a hit piece by any means. And I think, but but even if we don't if we don't get into this question of whether it's a good faith argument Uber is making, it comes back to what Katie said about that it wasn't as if the city set out to say how do we address racism inside the taxi industry. Let's find a partner to do that, and then oh here's Uber. It was very much like Uber, kind of like you know, planting op-eds saying like this, look at what, what else we can do, essentially, um, and sort of these increasingly grand claims about about the, the um, reforms they can bring to the city. And so there's at least that. And it also touches on the next chapter, which um, I'd like to stay with you carefully about, is, is about data. And Katie mentioned earlier how, you know, there's obviously Uber's in the data game and you do a nice job at showing how workers themselves, drivers are even aware of themselves as producing data for the company. Um, And that's really fascinating um, in in the way that they're so um, tuned into that. Um, But also, of course, the the city legislatures in the city that's trying to strive to to brand itself as an innovation hub um, has what you call kind of a data fetishism. And so how how did data fetishism shape the city's relationship with Uber?
2: Well, anyone else feel free to add to what I'm about to say, but, um, you know, I, I, I think part of what we again in terms of setting the stage setting the context you know uber like many cities across the country has uh, you know in an attempt to promote economic development grow as a city has you know latched on to different ideas right and some of those ideas have to do with technology and innovation I think the, the classic one is um, we should be a smart city right um, and and that that language has shifted, you know, it's, that it's kind of like a 10 years ago or eight years ago, but, but, you know, you see versions of, you know, different versions of it popping up and in the smart city in the innovative city, the coin of the realm is data, right? And that's what, that's what matters. And I think, um, Uber has understood that, right? And as a tech company, um, and transportation company that collects massive amounts of data about the cities in which it operates, uh, who's driving, where they're driving, uh, where 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 there's traffic, um, where there's potholes. Even um, you know, it has you know a considerable amount of information about cities. That cities themselves and city planners and uh, city policymakers don't necessarily have and so it, it can hold out the lure of data dangle the lure of data in front of planners and, and say look we can be as <laughs> Katie was saying you know we can be a partner we should be a partner um, in this and you know part of the challenge of that is you know oftentimes lost in those those that kind of, discussion is uh what 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 is data good for (laughs) do we have the capacity to to process it or make sense of it uh data for what data for whom you know um and so it becomes this kind of uh you know the chapter was very fun to write because as you might have noticed that we have kind of like a um you know, like our own, we're, we're questioning our own <laughs> approach. <It's> beautiful, <laughs> right? Yeah, this know? is
0: crisis of confidence. Yeah. Two thirds of the way in, it's right. very beautiful.
2: Yeah, we have this epistemic break, like halfway <laughs> through. And we're like, wait, wait, what are we? Are we just playing? You know, are we are we? Pl- has uh, are we playing the game that Uber has set for us? You know, and um, yeah. So, it, uh, anyone else want to add if I'm missing? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think uh, I, I think one of the things that Taffy um, first pointed out when we were writing, which is really interesting, was like, okay, one, there's this aspect, of course, like, are we just playing the game of, of fetishizing data ourselves? We need the data, the data will tell us. And, and someone in a talk pointed out to us, is that why do you need more data, you understand how this process works. So, like, what's data going to tell you that, like, you haven't already found out? But the other part of it was i think which we, when we first wrote a paper and then we wrote this chapter afterwards it was like that data is like a product of, of driver work and so it gets fetishized as this commodity but it's actually something that drivers produce even when they're not driving passengers around um they do this other form of hidden work right um that they don't get paid for so they wait and they do all these other things but like they also produce this data that that is really important to how the company works, and so it gets aggregated as big data. But in that process, you know, drivers are producing the most valuable commodity for companies like that um, in an unpaid manner. And and that seeing it as that way, I think allowed us to ask all these kind of political questions about, well, what was it doing and where was it going, and, and all these other kinds of questions. You know,
0: I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Any of you about about? Because I, I, I didn't appreciate the extent to which there were sort of promises made and, the, and how much the city was saying one of the best things we can get out of Uber is not just the, the impre- incre- you know, improved transportation networks, but also we can get this data that can help us. The idea was that this can help us do policy better in the future. Um, how did that, how, like, why was that so exciting to cities and, and, and then what happened?
2: Well, I think it started with the Uber. I mean, we start the chapter or the, it figures in the chapter the kind of Uber movement, um, which is the kind of platform that Uber launched. I can't remember what year two thousand sixteen fifteen. Have to buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 2015, 2016, That you know was an explicit offer to cities of of data. But then you know, as we show in multiple chapters of the book, there was a kind of longstanding shift in the city to Brand Washington D.C. as kind of a leader in not only innovation but like inclusive innovation, like innovation, tech innovation that um, that is equitable and that promotes growth, not just um, you know, to kind of classic Silicon Valley um, oligarch way, <laughs> but in, in kind of a way that benefits uh, communities, um, and so that you know, I, I think that comes from. You know, DC's kind of like all cities, uh, its desire to grow um, economically, bring people in. Um, so, I, yeah.
1: But I, but I think it's also right the desire for data is also sort of we can see it as a symptom of a local government that wants to do better right that wants more information about how to manage curbs how to do road pricing perhaps someday how to do bike lanes and bicycles um so i there the desire for the data to me You know, we of course ran up against some folks in government who are like, we don't need more data. And it's understandable, right? We at first were so, I was so offended by this attitude, right? I come from the enlightenment idea, more knowledge will make us better. And here we have policymakers saying, oh my God, we have enough. But the reality is they don't have the, as Kafwe alluded to, they don't have the ability to process it. And even when they do get data from these companies, it's not clean. And so we even found instances where the Department of Transportation was foregoing data that the city had actually been able to wiggle out of these companies because it was so useless and instead purchasing it from a third party to try to make sense of their roads. Right. It's a common resource where they have to manage and they can't really see what's happening.
0: There's this this moment I remember where they have a city official who's already just used to getting tetrabytes of data every day that it's just so raw they can't do anything with without more staff and whether there's going to be a a real return on that investment if they were to staff it up more. Also saying he was just afraid that the email would either be too much data or it would be an angry email from an Uber lawyer. (laughs) And just Really, you feel for this guy, this person in this story, but... Uh, Declan, if we could turn to the fourth chapter, which I think you took the lead on here, um, it has the delightful title. All of the chapter titles are really good in this book, but uh, Flying Cars and Other Legends. And that was, I, I don't know if I'm feeling old. There's so many things that I had memory hold about Uber's story, even though Uber story is not that old. Like, I, I forgot there was an Uber before Uber X. I, I thought that was sort of the original form of it. Um, I forgot that Uber was so in on the, the flying car nonsense. Um, And then you just really, really remind us that from the start, that automated vehicles were really central to Uber's original business plan. It was monopolize the market, raise prices, and then eventually replace drivers with automated cars. Um, And so even though that fleet never materialized and and they sold off uh, what they were doing with AV um, a few years ago, AVs, you argue, are still really important to the story of Uber in D.C. What are some of the reasons for that?
3: Um, yeah, well, you stop me if I go on too long here because I'm really like fascinated by like the AVs and flying car stuff. Um, probably because my training is kind of historical. So it's like fun to really think about something so futuristic. But the his- the history of it is like really um, also really important. Um, so, like the first driver I interviewed back in 2016 when I was talking to him about like worker categorization and potential for unions and blah, 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 he just said to me, look, this is all pointless. We're going to have flying cars in like two or three years. I was like, what? <laughs> and so I was really, my interest is really peaked, And so I started reading like a lot more around um, the idea. And in many ways, it's kind of like the leading edge of the data question, right? It's a technological kind of fetishism, or, or as we kind of call it, like a tech, tech solutionism, right? As like proposing tech as this kind of catch all solution to problems in cities. Um and so a lot of my kind of early thinking on it was influenced by this like great essay by the um the late great David Graeber, who's called like A Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit. And he just made this very simple argument or this question in, in the anime, the essay is like, where are the flying cars? And I was like, Yeah, I want to know where they are. I've been hearing about them since I was a little kid. Um, and so he says, like, you know, there are big limits to technological development under capitalism. And so these limits, he kind of points out, are self interested. So, like, why would you bother automating vehicles when you have, like, low-wage drivers that bring their own cars, their own wear and tear, all and, and so they're providing, like, everything. And so Uber is, like, this company that doesn't have assets because it just, you know, it just manages a platform. And so if you control fleets of AVs, then it's, like, it's not a profit-making kind of, like, enterprise. Um, but he says that, that also, like, capitalism must, like constantly put forward this idea that it is technologically innovative because if not like what's the point of all this right um and so we're left with this kind of like you know problem of like how do we think about technological progress and how do we think about these ideas um um under kind of you know current uh, late capitalism whatever we call it i think the whole argument is summed up in a tweet from 2017 so in dc there was this like uh, uh um they had down in the georgetown waterfront It was a wealthy area, lots of restaurants and shops. There was like a night scope K-5 security robot that like pitched into a fountain Um, and everybody laughed really hard. And and, uh, so a nearby office worker tweeted, um, uh, our D.C. office building got a security robot and it drowned itself. We were promised flying cars and instead we got suicidal robots. Um, So the Internet kind of remains undefeated, right, Um, as usual. So, but, but the idea, so the argument kind of was like, so we hear all this talk of flying cars constantly, why don't we see AVs? Why don't, why aren't they working in cities and so on and so forth, right? And so this disconnect is really important, right? It's a solution that never really arrives, but it's always just about to arrive. Um, And so this kind of, this, this kind of um, idea of like what this technology is doing, or sorry, the idea is basically that, you know, the, the lure or the idea of tech and flying cars offers this kind of solution, right? So, it allows Uber to do a bunch of things, right? It allows venture capital to plow investment into this company, thinking, oh, wow, they're the future. They're going to bring flying cars. We're going to invest in the ground floor of this kind of like future of of cities, right? This is really important because, like, the financial aspect of Uber is actually crazy. Like, they don't make profit, they burn money. Um, Part of it's an investment like this, a lot of it's in lobbying and political fights and so on and so forth. Um, and, of course, in, in lowering the prices of car of, of rides to try to you know, get um, to corner the market. And so it's really important to keep that kind of extreme of venture capital coming into the company. And, and that's really, I think, an important aspect of how it works in, in cities. It also as like the first interview shows it has this effect on drivers where drivers think to themselves, well, like, why would you bother unionizing or even beginning to think about doing any kind of political work around this? Because we're already obsolete, right? Now, of course, it's not true because, you know, like, you know, as, as we've seen over the pandemic and so on and so forth, um, you know, drivers are crucial, right? They're essential to how this whole business model works, but they're framed as, you know, um, non-essential or, you know, imminently kind of obsolete. And that's important, I think, kind of politically. Um, uh, you might say actually a lot of the innovations of, of these technologies is actually in, in labor surveillance and in control rather than kind of eliminating labor. Although, you know, like, you know, the odd AV test or, um, a little robot going around is enough to kind of like you know build this discourse that like this is this is happening, right? And then as Kathy is pointing out with data for cities, it's really important because they can say like, you know, AVs are like this kind of you know um, uh, uh, vehicle. I can't think of another word, right? For for showing like innovation, right? Really in the streets to say, look, here's an AV. This is the future. It's coming. Um, and it allows cities to kind of like you know they. they DC has proposed legislation, or has passed legislation, I should say, around AVs, around personal um, delivery devices, like robots and stuff, all these things that show that they can solve problems. So they could say, like, we'll use little robots to solve food deserts, as if the problem was kind of a technical disconnect. We've happened to misplace people far from food, right? Um, And so this promise of technology, we make this argument, is really important because like, it, it, you know... I'm not saying that tech is bad, right? Clearly, we're going to need technological innovation to solve lots of the problems we have, right? But it's also the case that, like, a lot of problems in cities don't need technological solutions. Like, food deserts need grocery stores, right? (laughs) Like, we need, like, public transit systems to, like, mass move people around cities. We need, like, solutions that we already have at our disposal that we don't use, right? Um, For a whole host of reasons that um, that we've talked about. Um, And so this kind of... um, uh, argument to us is really important because tech makes these promises it never fulfills and actually when you do see tech work in cities in this way is like avs um, the little robots and all these other kinds of systems they don't work across cities and there's like an even way to like ameliorate inequality they actually just work in generally gentrifying neighborhoods right so you can go to a new like somewhere like the wharf in dc which is like you know billion dollar like waterfront development um, and you can get a little, or you could, the company went bankrupt, of course. Um, and Uber of course sold off all its AV stuff as well. So like this, this kind of like uh, they're like theme park rides, right? You're getting a little AV and it brings you over here or you order your groceries and they come in a little thing. And, and it's not actually a solution to anything. In fact, in many ways, it probably just, you know, cements this kind of unequal development. I mean, a lot of real estate developments in DC, for example, and not a lot, but there's a few, um, had Uber waiting rooms, right? So you go into a huge like amenity rich new apartment building and you sit there and you wait for your Uber. And so it, for us, I think in many ways, it concentrates rather than kind of like um, offers a solution to these problems of, of urban inequality. And I think so. It's not really what AVs are doing in cities. We don't see them in D.C. We see them in other places working a little bit. But it's rather what the idea of AVs allows us to do in cities and how it reshapes politics and development.
0: Thanks. And, and I you know when I read the line about the little food delivery Roombas and solving food deserts, I wrote some very unkind words in the margin that I can't repeat on air. But um, but turning to Katie here in, in the final chapter in the book, um, as, as Declan intimated, there's the voice of workers and you did dozens of interviews with workers uh, and drivers there. Their, uh, their voices are across the book, but you really, in the final chapter, you look at the Uber workplace, as you call it, although you note that it is a placeless workplace. And that too, of course, pushes against any threat of unionization. And because I didn't, it's, you talk about how many worker drivers have never even hung out with another driver, let alone, you know, uh, had a meeting about, about about workplace conditions and things like that. Um, although the kind of ironic twist here is you do note that there's, there's some ways that the company had certain moments in your words, quote, unintentionally laid the groundwork for solidarity among workers. That seems really, really hard to pull off in a time where everyone's scattered and kept scattered. Um, So how did that work?
1: Yeah, thanks for that, Brian. I should preface by saying, so the beginning of this project was a set of interviews with 40 Uber drivers in 2016. And what we did over the next five years is we followed them as they moved on and off the apps through the pandemic. And certainly there was attrition some years, but because the five-year period was long enough, we were also able to reconnect with folks that certain years went by we hadn't seen. And so it gave us a really meaningful sense into these folks and how they understood their work, how they experienced it and what they found. Um, The intense isolation was persistent across time periods. Um, The one exception to that was this place, right, within D.C. where it did feel like the company had unintentionally laid groundwork for organizing. And that was at a bottleneck, right, the bottleneck of the D.C.A., the National Airport. And so there was organizing work there. There also was a protest there. And actually, even as recently as last month. There was a new group of workers, Uber drivers that staged a protest there that are working with New Virginia Majority um, and Ace out of Virginia. Um, and I think it is not a coincidence that that is also where they showed um, you know, their worker demonstration, because that is a place where, despite Uber's attempts to try to spread workers throughout the city, right, the airport's a hub and folks come together there and that's a time when they wait and there's lag time and so it was an opportunity for a lot of workers to build relationships talk to each other and recognize that it wasn't just that they weren't smart enough to make the app work for them but rather that the work on the app was set out to screw them and I think that difference was really sort of um it, it was really heartening for us because for a while we were so disheartened by hearing all these workers talk about why I just wasn't smart enough. They had internalized the failures of the app because they didn't have colleagues, they didn't have peers to understand, no honey, this system is set up to screw you, you're, you're not screwing up. Um, and at the airport, that's where some of those informal but meaningful conversations took place.
0: Thanks, um, back to Declan here. In the end of your chapter, you you say that technology's most seductive promise th- is that it allows us to escape from politics. And in the conclusion or introduction of the book, I think it is you you quote um, Nikhil Saval um, arguing that quote What Uber wants cannot exist alongside a democratic society. Um, and you all offer this book as evidence of that. You also say that some policymakers thought that's you know that's hyperbole, that's going too far. Um, why do you think it's not going too far to make a claim as grand as that one?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes when you write a book, you gotta make a big claim, right? Um, and so I'm no expert on democracy, but I think in 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 the tech sense it's 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 very true. Like in, in AVs are are, you know, they're like that in the sense that they they kind of say we don't need to engage in politics or messy solutions or, or questions of inequality. We can just engineer solutions to those things, right? Um, and I think that that kind of logic or that kind of ideology is is really strong and so part of this came out of this reading of uh, uh, this book by langdon winner the whale and the reactor so it's like a philosophy of technology and he makes this this quip in it you know if if uh, the unexamined life is not worth living nobody's told engineers right that that you know technology isn't just something we need to regulate or it's not something that we need to think about as something subject to politics. Like it is politics, right, in the first place. And we need to think about it from the ground up as, as a politics. And so I think in, in, in one sense, right, in recent years, you know, Uber comes in on this wave of like tech optimism, right, like post-recession, post-2008, where, you know, we can figure out all these problems and, and tech is this area that, you know, loads of money is flowing into. And this moment of kind of like maybe it peaks with Obama or just post-Obama, right, that like, you know, technology is the solution to democracy, like Twitter gives us an Arab spring and, and all these platforms can allow us to be more democratic. And now we're in this profound pessimistic moment where like, oh no, what have we done? Like um, it's eroding the basis of democracy, right? And Uber is part of that story. I mean, maybe not on the grand the national scale of like a Facebook or a Twitter, um, uh, but it's part of the story, particularly on a municipal level, right? Of Like how cities uh, work. And so the central goal of the book in that sense is really to show that um, that Uber is not really an economic thing or a tech thing. It's like a political project, right? And so this has become obvious maybe through things like the uh, the Uber files, which the Guardian published last year, which are mainly European based, right? But they show the level of political lobbying and influence that is think, profoundly undemocratic, right? Um, we see it in California with the kind of AB5 bill where they're trying to you know, reclassify gig workers as employees and then uber you know and lyft and a bunch of other kind of subsidiaries and conglomerates so they're all in it together they spend over 200 million dollars on proposition
0: 22 to reverse the decision right the most expensive ballot initiative of all time i think in the history of
3: all time right and they outspent unions like 10 to one more than sorry 20 to one so like 10 million dollars versus like 200 million dollars it's it's so on 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 political campaigns on social media campaigns on lobbying Um, This is part of the story of like uh, the book with Operation Rolling Thunder, which was DC's like kind of initial, this is long before these things, like, you know, eight years before Proposition 22. And so, you know, an Operation Rolling Thunder incidentally is the name of the US bombing campaign against North Vietnam from 1965 to 68, which is a nice relic of how terrible Uber's like uh, corporate culture was in the early days, right? We're just going to call this political campaign like um, after uh, this kind of horrendous like uh, bombing campaign anyway so I think that idea is, is is really important to think of it like as anti-democratic is is important like if companies like uber can spend all this money and they can force kind of um, uh, um, you know legislation or the repeal of legislation then they they get to the side but there's there's kind of a tension there that we had to deal with um, so at one point we were like okay operation rolling Thunder is this you know 50,000 emails get sent to DC council people are asking for uber they're like don't regulate it we need it in the city and we were like, what if that's democratic, right? You get all these people engaged in politics, emailing their council members, right? But I, I think we argue and, and believe, right, that the that you know you can't equate a consumer base with citizens, right, of a city as a whole. Like there's there's a lot of people who live in DC, they're not all Uber users, um, and not all of them are expressing their voice in that way. And so it, it kind of reflects and, and Nikhil in, in the article and then plus one really talks about this this conflation between consumerism and citizenship, right? That you vote with your wallet, that your your consumer choices are your politics. And this is part of that broader kind of common sense thing, right, where we we conceive of politics as, as a set of consumer choices, not as something different, right? That like there's public goods, like transportation that shouldn't be left to companies like Uber because they're just too important. I mean, Kafui has a wonderful book about it. If we're allowed to plug a second book, um, in 2000 uh, 2019 your book rights and transit is like your know, transit is a public right like we need it and it's too important to leave to these companies and so I think in in, in that sense like allowing public goods to become you know uh, ruled by by private corporations you know creates a whole set of problems not least of which is what happens if these companies go out of business right we have a whole infrastructure that you know, just disappears
0: Kaffee, we we've had a couple of very interesting, years with uh, with labor in labor history and in political economy in general in cities and elsewhere. And while your analysis in this book really highlights the role of low expectations, as you put it, of citizens, of policymakers, um, of workers themselves, as Katie mentioned it, um, you've concluded the book with some indications that expectations might be on the rise. And Katie mentioned the DCA protests last month. Um, what other causes are there to believe that?
2: So I think we were writing this chapter Probably in the wake of um Strike Tober in twenty twenty one. So that that was fresh um that was fresh news. And so um but I think it's continued. You know, I think this summer has I think they're calling it hot labor summer or something like that. You know, so I there's just a kind of um although it, it you know, although it's 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 still limited, there is a kind of revived interest in labor organizing, um, strikes, workplace organizing, um, and, in, and in sectors that have long been uh, immune from that sort of like service industry, Starbucks. Um, Katie, you want to jump in?
1: Yeah, I would just also add that, you know, to shift from the labor point, we're also in this renewed conversation, thanks to folks like Malcolm Harris, author of Palo Alto, Meredith Whitaker, president of Signal, right? And even let's say, the, I think it's Time or Newsweek Magazine this week, has a photo on the front of an AI group of um, indigenous uh, Indians who are working on technology. So there is this renewed conversation about the power structures innate in the kind of tech that we have. And that to me, coupled with the labor, feels really hopeful, Yeah. right? And that, um, and that conversation about how technology threatens or contributes to fascism feels very um, much not sort of on the sidelines in my tiny worldview. And I think that's very different than a decade ago.
2: Yeah, I also think there's just there's there's a lot to there's uh, uh, various organizations and groups. I was thinking of the um, Urban and Lyft Drivers Association of Minnesota, the Deliveristas in, in, um, New York. Um, there's, what's the group in LA? Um,
1: Ride Chair Drivers right, United. Right, right.
2: And so these are, these, Seattle
1: just passed more stuff too. Yeah.
2: So there's, there, there's kind of, um, you know, for a lot of the book or a lot of our research, it, it felt very, um, it, it felt like uh, Uber was kind of just running roughshod without much resistance to, uh, but but now I think in the last two or three years there, we, we are both seeing resistance at the grassroots level from from drivers, as well as some, you know, take up from, from legislators. I think there are still threats and still, and I'll give the example of the recent um, kind of uh, incident in, in Minnesota um, where the... The governor vetoed a kind of minimum wage uh, law that had gone through, uh, you know, had been passed by both uh, chambers of the House uh, of the governing body um, and vetoed it on grounds that, you know, we need... Uber and Lyft in rural areas because of paratransit, because uh, it's providing a paratransit role, and and again, it's like you know, it's like our book. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, we should send Tim Walls, uh, who's the governor, a copy of the book because it, it it really highlights the degree to which you know cities and state governments by partnering with Uber have really you know it's a it's a it's a Faustian bargain. You know, they are they are dealing with a company that can, in the instance they're threatened, um, ho- use as hostages, you know, people in uh, rural areas who have come to rely on uh, Uber and Lyft because the state has withdrawn services that it would otherwise have provided, not using these companies. So there are basically there are there's a lot of. Positive developments in terms of organizing, but there are still risks and and dangers, um, you know, going forward.
0: Go ahead. Did you want to get in there, Dickon?
3: Yeah, I just um um this is part again of this the story of conditions. I mean, um, uh, some reviewers of the book when we spoke to them like made a a very interesting point that like. You know, part of the thing of like low expectations um, uh, is of like we have low expectations of what democratic politics can achieve, and so a lot of these struggles are trying to raise our expectations for what cities can do again. But it's also that Uber kind of thrives in this context of like democratic ennui, right? That we're kind of bored with politics, that we actually kind of want tech solutions because it stuff's hard and messy and and difficult, and 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 so the tech kind of allure is like, it, it, you know, it's it's tempting. And again, it's kind of part of this idea of not laying all the blame on Uber. That you know, as as a society, we have our own role to play in this. And um, there's lots of different forces at work, um, uh, and there's lots of attempts to change these things. But um, a lot of it is kind of this messy and and protracted political kind of process of trying to shift, you know, that that thing of common sense of like what do we want and how do we get it and and all that. And so I think like this 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 broader. This broader context of like a lack of belief in democratic politics is also really important for thinking about what has allowed Uber to thrive as well.
0: Well, I hope you are kept very busy in the weeks and months to come getting this book out there into the hands of governors and whomever else. Uh, Maybe you can divide and conquer. It's been such a treat to have all three of you here today. So thank you for that. Before I let you go, my curiosity is getting the best of me. I'd, I'd love to invite you to say a bit about any current projects that you're ready to preview for listeners. How about you, Katie?
1: Sure. Yeah, I am still apparently a one trick pony. I'm still following Uber, but I'm following its Uber Eats version, um, as well as its derivative um, Ghost Kitchens, Cloud Kitchens project uh, from Uber C- former Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick, who is buying up uh, property across the U.S. using tax distress credits um, and engaged in a legislative battle through um, with Bradley Tusk, it's former political strategist um, with something new called the Digital Restaurant Association, trying to get cities not to regulate the third-party restaurant delivery industry. Um, so I'm following GoPuff, Instacart, Uber Eats, DoorDash, things like that.
0: Wow. How about you, Declan?
3: What else is on your plate? Um, I'm hoping to continue to work with uh, my two friends here. Um, we're still friends, even after writing a book together, as we like to keep pointing out. Yeah. Um, no, I continue kind of thinking a little bit about this automation issue in cities and how it works um, and this kind of the, the kind of, you know, the broader empirical projects of that, um, how they work in different cities and, and so on, uh, among some other more boring projects. <laughs> <laughs> and Cathwine?
2: Well, apart from continuing to work with uh, Katie and Declan, I'm, I'm focused on teaching at the moment. <laughs> uh Prep, you know, prepping for the fall, and uh, you know, I've been teaching some of the same classes in the same way for forever. So I want to try to, um, you know, do some revisions and thinking about how to make my courses more interesting, at least for my sake. So as I'm lecturing, <laughs> I'm also not falling asleep.
0: That's the most heroic project of all: the fight against that inertia in the curriculum. So. Hooray to that. Well, this book again is Disrupting DC, The Rise of Uber, and the Fall of a City. It comes out today from Princeton University Press. Its authors are, and my guests have been Katie Wells, Cafuyato, and Declan Cullen, who are not breaking up, and the band is staying together here. Katie, Cafuy, Declan, thanks so much for your time and for this wonderful book. Thank
3: you. Thanks,
1: Brian.
0: Thanks so much, Brian.